everybody. I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, the founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are today. Welcome to Stand Up and Speak Up. This is going to be a really interesting show, as they all are. And I'm coming to you from sunny South Florida, in spite of some of the rain we've had. It's a beautiful day in paradise. And I was just talking to Canada. It's a little bit hot in Canada, and they're looking for some rain, too. And uh, we're glad that they're always here to visit us. And as a matter of fact, it is Happy Canada Day today. To all of our friends up in Canada, we wish you a very happy Canada Day from South Florida to you. I also want to wish everybody in the United States a happy 4th of July coming up this weekend. It's a time to be out there with family and to make some choices. I wrote an article in Positive Tribes this month. It hit the, hit the air this morning. It was all about making choices. And those choices are hamburger, hot dog, macaroni and cheese, corn on the cob, whatever you want. It's your choice this weekend. It was a blast. I was like, I'm not getting political 4th of July. We're going to have fun and our choices are what we eat. So get out there and have a big old ice cream on me. So welcome, everybody. I'm so excited today. I have a new guest that came to me, Holly Winter-Hupert. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here, too. I was, you know, Holly comes to us. She's a school teacher, so we kind of worked around her school schedule. The more I read about you, the more I'm intrigued as to who you are and what you are and why you reached out to me, but I'm so excited because our show is called Stand Up and Speak Up, and many times we hide behind things that have happened to us in our past, and this is a time, This your story is one of those that I really find compelling, where you are standing up and speaking up about things that are happening, that have happened to you in the past, and I honor you for that, and I thank you for being my guest. So, I always like to start the show with you telling us, telling our audience, a little bit about you, where you, where you grew up, your siblings, family situation, because I want to get an idea of the whole person. So can you kind of tell me who Holly Winter was when she was young? Sure. I was raised in upstate New York in the Woodstock area, that same Woodstock that you know about from the big concert. I grew up in Woodstock, Vermont. And they oh, always did. thought That's they always so thought funny. that I was in the Woodstock, New York. <laughs> <laughs> so That's you're the so funny. You're the real Woodstock, yes. New Yorker. So, yep, I, I'm a real Woodstock, New Yorker, and I went to like the Woodstock Elementary School and everything. And I lived here, you know, grew up, and then I escaped. I was like, I don't want to live in a little town, and I ran away. And I lived in Europe for a while and I lived all different places, ended up in Denver for 20 years and love Denver, but I kind of missed trees and country life. So I moved back this way about five years ago. And I'm so glad I did. Uh, current, I've taught everything you can imagine because I've moved around a lot. I have taught um, regular education, elementary school. I've taught special education, middle school, high school. Currently, I'm teaching kindergarten. That's my day job. Um, I teach kindergarten at a public Montessori school in Kingston, New York, and I love it. I feel very fortunate to have this position. And I, um, on the side, I do writing, and I run a skincare company. So I run a publishing company and a skincare company on the side. You are one busy woman. Now, when you were young, you have brothers and sisters, or you... 
I do. There are six children in my family, and we grew up in the country. So every day we would have to make a decision how we would play. You know, we had the kind of mom long ago, go outside and play. So we could either climb a mountain or up the mountain, and there were caves to explore and fogs to walk through, or we could walk down the mountain and go hang out at the reservoir, um, which was off limits. But, you know, when you grew up there, you kind of knew where to go, where they couldn't. Where were you in the mix? So I have an older, I'm a middle, one of the middle, middle. When, when there's six, there's a bunch of middles, but I have an older brother and an older sister. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm number three. Okay. That number two girl. That's right. Number two girl, number three child. Now you do a lot of writing and reading now. Did you, were you a reader and a writer when you were young? I was. Um, actually, uh, see, I, I do this. This is one of the things that I do. Whenever people say, what was your favorite candy as a child, I make something up. Whenever somebody says a question I've actually never been asked before, were you a reader and writer, I, have to, I usually just make something up because I have complete and total amnesia. I never regained my childhood, so I don't really oh. know. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't remember. In, that'll lead us into our story today because I'm <laughs> – I, as I was telling you before we started the show, I originally I really love what you do with the children and the books that you've written, and I'm going to sh- send everybody to your website because I really love Amazon, but I do support small businesses because I own a small company myself, and so we will send people to your publishing company. You're, actually, why don't you go ahead? To be easy, I figured out that hollywinter.com, H-O-L-L-Y, has a bridge to all of my to both of my businesses. Even better. Even better. So yeah. hollywinter.com. But you've written a couple of children's books, and I was going to go that way. Uh, and then when I saw your yeah, post about there. That's, well, when I saw oh, your post ahead. about the amnesia, and your friends were like, well, you've already talked about that for all these years. And I went and Googled you, which I do. I, I do a lot of research. I couldn't find anything about that. So... It's been a long time. Did, did you have this as a child or there was, a, there was an accident or something? What happened? That So I had a normal, happy childhood. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She would take us swimming every day at my uncle's house. Normal, great childhood. I became a teacher. After my second year of teacher, I was in a devastating car accident without oxygen for, they're thinking, at least 12 minutes. Um, and... I, no, I'm sorry. Look, I'm even mixing up my story. That's okay. I I haven't talked about this in a long time, and because of the whole shame behind being sick, are you sick again? Come on, what is going on? So, I'm so sorry. When I was in college, I worked at a camp for mentally retarded adults. So I was, because I didn't know if I wanted to be a special ed teacher. Mm -hmm. While I was at the camp, Someone slipped me a date rape drug. Mm. And early, I joked that I was a beta tester, and I took it, and it completely fried my brain. I lost every memory for the first 18 years of my life. Everything was gone. I didn't know how to walk. I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know how to read and write. I didn't know who, who, what mother meant. I didn't know who people were. Everything was brand new. So I had never um, seen bugs. I had never seen a dog. Like, everything was horrifyingly new. Um, the first time I took a shower, my mother had to help me. Obviously, this wasn't right after the coma, but, but shortly after. And I'm in the shower with her, and she took a bar of soap, and she was speaking softly and put it on my arm. And I, I thought my skin was coming off. I still have this memory. Like, it was so terrifying, and I went running out of the shower and, they talked about it at the hospital for many years, how, they, how hard it was to catch a wet, slippery, naked woman running through the hospital <laughs> in absolute terror. But I remember the first time I saw rain, I thought my mom had made that happen. I wonder if that's what little children think when they see rain. Like mm-hmm. I thought, look, my mom ordered rain for me. And um, so I lost everything. I had to regain everything, which made me very interested in teaching and education because I was learning to read as an adult. I, I obviously learned faster mm-hmm. than I had the first time, but I 
had an insider's view of what it felt like to hold a pencil and it was uncomfortable or trying to learn my colors and I couldn't remember the word purple. So it, it, it could be a frightening, a very frightening thing in, in addition to being uh, wonderful or wonder, full of wonder, you know. Yeah. So it actually wasn't scary because I had no memory that I should have had a memory. Nope, everything was gone. Every, so I absolutely, it was like I was an infant again in the, in the body of an 18-year-old. Well, I, honestly, I'm really grateful now that you're telling me about this, that you have a memory of it, because, or just a story, but I wouldn't know the difference. But it's just incredible to me. So the complete memory loss, and it, so you didn't remember family, you didn't remember anything. Correct. Okay. Correct. I was a clean slate. Who was your support system during that? Your mom? So just just family, yeah. My my okay. my. I, I have lots of brothers and sisters. I have a great family, and I just thought they were nice people. I was like, yeah, I'll keep them. Like I didn't know who they were. I had no oh. idea. And my mom was very worried about like me being taken advantage of. Imagine a little girl in an eighteen-year-old woman's body. Absolutely. So she made sure she got a psychiatrist who was an older very calm family man. That's what she wanted. At the time, I don't think there were women, you know, because it was mm-hmm. a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So she just really, they wanted me to live in the psych ward and my mother wouldn't hear of it. She was like, absolutely, she is not going to grow up in the psych ward mm-hmm. and be around that and think that's what normal looks like. When I did go home to her house, she would say things like, okay, why don't you go take a nap? I'm like, okay. She goes, why don't you go to your room? Like, they kept trying to trick me into remembering because that's what they believed at the time. Oh. Trick, Holly. They would, they, you know, like, go to your room and take a nap. I don't, I don't know where, where, what is my, like, I didn't even know what my room meant. So um, there was a lot of tricking and trying to tell stories and, and do you remember this? Do you remember that? It was exhausting. It really was. Like, well, maybe I'm trying to look at it from their point of view too. Is they didn't know how to do that. They didn't. You had to absolutely. Re, you couldn't recreate memories. You had to make new. Make well, that's you, exactly right. Were you able to remember after you made those new memories? Yes. Yes. Okay. The gift of what I have is that my memory was very strong. Okay. And I was able to remember new memories. Okay. Wow, see, that, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Well, I, honestly, the only reason I would think of that right now is because we were talking about the, I can't even say it, the face blindness. Protopagnosia. Protopagnosia. Right. And I was watching um, the 60 Minutes article on that. Leslie Stahl did it. And one of the doctors there, Dr. Oliver Sachs and Chuck Close, who's an artist, they were talking about that. And they said, and another gentleman was there, he said, I could be talking with you and I'd be looking at your face and then you walk out of the room and come back and I wouldn't remember who you were. So, so they then, were not. Right. So we can go into my second kind of amnesia. Uh-huh. So the first amnesia, 14, 18 years gone. And it's funny because I, I decided the way to handle that was to move away from home. Oh. So I, but I couldn't right away because I, I had so, I had, I was very needy. Mm. Then I, um, go back to college, like take some courses and try to learn to read and write and remember. And I didn't have a good, strong, long-term memory in the beginning. I had to develop that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I could remember things that I had done. So I go back to college. I work at a summer camp and someone slipped me a date rape drug. They're not sure who it was at the camp. Um, And that put me into a coma. And that, um, I came out of that with, um, isn't it funny? I, I just haven't even talked about this in a long time. And, you know, the reason is moving to a new state, getting new doctors, so many people, and that's why I thought your whole concept behind your program was interesting. Going to a new doctor and say, I have two kinds of amnesia, they write down like mentally ill. And I'm like, wait, what are you doing? No. That's not, that's not a mental illness. That is a brain dysfunction. Right. right? So it, it's so interesting to even talk about it. And that's what I said. I haven't talked about it. I just stopped talking about it because of the shame of having so many. I've had the craziest medical life, so many different things. 
Well, can I please ask you to get shame out of your vocabulary? You had yeah. nothing to do with this. It's not you. And it's and that's the thing about in our story, in my story, you know, I could say I'm ashamed of what I did, but, it, you know, it was done to us. And this is something, and, and the drug that you had, do you know what the drug was? Did they ever determine what that was? No, they knew, no. they just said a psychotropic drug, not indigenous to the United States. So they knew oh, it wow. was something, yeah, it was something from far away. It was in a pill form. It was, it, my understanding is that I was out with friends, and when you grew up in a small area, it is so rare to see someone you don't already know, right? Even if you go out at night. Right. Because it's a small area. And even though, like, it's someone for, and there were these two really cute men from New York City, and this was, like, amazing. Because that never happened when I grew up. And um, we all hung out and had fun, and then I had a headache, and I wanted to go back. And they were like, I have an aspirin. I'm like, I am not taking an aspirin out of your pocket. This is what people would <laughs> So they, I put it in my pocket because they made me take it. And I got back to the camp and I went in and I couldn't find my aspirin. And I didn't, I was afraid I would wake up all the campers because I was a counselor and I had to sleep in the same bunk. So I just took one of those. I took one of the pills. It made me pretty sick. Fast forward a little bit. What got you into the teaching? It's actually a very interesting story. Before my complete and total amnesia, I wanted to be a musician, a concert pianist, and oh. I was quite good, even maybe a child prodigy, according to my music teacher. Um, I was amazing, and she had made tape cassettes of me playing and sent them to a, a prestigious university, and they offered me a free ride. Wow. I know, it was kind of exciting. So I was going to finish my first two years of community college and then go there. And my mom wasn't really happy with that choice because she thought it would be a hard life to be a musician. Mm. So after the complete and total amnesia, when my music teacher said, you wanted to be a musician, my mom said, no, you didn't. You wanted to be a special education teacher. That was your dream. And the music teacher kept going, Holly, I'm telling you, listen, this, and I'm like, but I lost the ability to play piano. I couldn't play anymore. She said, it will come back. I can teach you. That, that didn't go away. But I believed my mom. Long story short, my mother's dream for herself was to grow up and be a special education teacher. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Vicarious <laughs> Yeah, and we've talked about it. We have talked about it. It was not a bad choice because it really taught me how do you, that, being a special ed teacher, I learned how to use my own gifts and what I'm good at to get by on a brain that doesn't work the way everyone else's does. So I've mm -hmm. learned how to rely on my strengths just as I teach my students how to rely on their strengths. Memory is 100%, 90%? My memory is probably a little better than 100%. The testing they've done, like I remember things better than most people do. Uh, my auditory memory is a little bit stronger. Yeah, I just have, I, my memory is a little bit better. than. Um, but, you know, if I'm tired like anyone else, the day-to-day -day things can switch just like everybody. Right. Oh. Each year that I get older, I recognize that I'm forgetting a few things. And my, my parents are 86 and 91, and, and every now and then, you know, we'll hear a story over and over. And uh, I'm like, Mom and I will get together. And she goes, remember, remember that? Remember what we did? And I'm like, ooh. No, not really. <laughs> or she'll say, I don't remember. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we're having a senior moment, and we'll get over this one. So, That's but this funny. is just fascinating to me how you went through that, and I can understand, you know, how frustrating it might have been with the doctors that you're like, just give me a break. You know, you don't need to be bullied or shamed by a doctor. You need them to help you. And it, yeah, yeah, it's actually a, a ongoing. I've had the craziest medical things. So. You know, to have amnesia, most people have amnesia and they kind of snap out, like the complete and total. There comes a time when they start getting vague, faint memories back. Mine didn't work that way. Hmm. Right? So that's, um, there's only five people in the world, according to an amnesia expert I met with, that they only knew of four people in the world that had the kind of amnesia where you have to start back from an infant mind. And they hmm. were shocked to even hear about me. They're like, how did we miss this? So I was the fifth one that they, they had heard about. And then the visual amnesia. I'm the first, well, there is one other person 
in the research that they had to call it that. Um, I'm, so I'm the only living person they know. It's like, why can't I? And I have had the craziest medical things in my life. And you go to the doctor and they're like, oh, I have something going on right now that it's been a year and a half. And the doctors think I'm lonely or they think, um, they, they look at my rap sheet of medical stuff and they're like, come on, nobody could have two amnesias, type 4 melanoma, heart issues. Everything I've had is probably related to the lack of oxygen in the car accident, like the heart mm-hmm. issue or whatever. Right now I have a, something, a pleurisy that won't go away, and so I'm having to go to a lot of doctors. I'm getting tired of telling my story. So usually I walk in and say, no previous history, nothing at all. I've always been healthy. Um, wow, you are, you are the woman behind the smile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You live my title there. Um, okay, just clarification here. When was the car accident versus the date rape? The car accident was when you were how old? I was 18 for the date rape drug. I was That's in college. I, mean. I was 18. Okay. And That's then I was I 24 for the car accident. Well, I'm really glad that you, that you spoke up about this because for me it's – yeah, I, there's no shame involved. I'm honestly, I'm so grateful that you're speaking up because I had no idea. I had no idea that these right. things existed. However, when my father had a neurological issue right before Christmas, and he was at the hospital, and they took him in, he couldn't remember what was going on or who he was, and they called me oh, in wow. and they had him strapped to the bed. And my dad's oh. pretty strong, but he's 91. But he was so angry that they had they had um, put these restraints on him that he was just, his arms were bleeding because he was pulling so hard, and they oh called me and said you need to come in and talk to him and calm him down because we we can't give him a drug to settle him down because they were trying to figure out what was going on in his mind in his brain, and when I got there I was like Dad, for the first time I was the adult, and I was like you've right. got to calm down, and then we started talking and it was just like. He was remembering when he was, you know, young and when we were living in Vermont and all these things. I'm like, Pop, you're in Florida. You're in the hospital. Do you remember what happened? And he couldn't remember any of it. And I know how frustrated wow. I got trying to first calm him down, but then try to say, you know, that in the hallway, that's a light in the hallway. That's not someone on a wall. It's not, you know, so it was very odd for me trying to understand what was going on in his brain. And like you said, three or four days later, boom, it was gone. And, and he was back to remembering everything. Um, nice. So when I was you know, tr- reading your story and, and trying to figure this out, I'm thinking, as a family member, too, it must have been incredibly frustrating. And like I could see your mom trying to trick you. She may not have been tricking you. She just didn't know what way to, you know, you don't know right. where your room is. So You're right. You're right. No, I, I have no bad feelings for my family at all. At all. Yeah. They were, I mean, my uncle took me on a, on a um, roller coaster ride. Oh, dear. And I didn't know what a roller coaster was. So imagine that. That was a shock. I remember that. And I was so mad at him. But again, they thought that it was possible that they could, they didn't know at the time it was completely fried. At the time, they believed any memories that you had were always there and you just had to learn to tap back into them. Okay, that may not be the case, right? Not the Mine case. Were absolutely fried. So if we're looking at a chalkboard, it is erased. Yes. There's nothing there. Wow, that's, that's incredible. So given that's your past, and now you're, I love that you're dealing with children and kindergartners during COVID. Is, it's, I give you so much credit because my grandkids are about that age. How do you have a, what's your unique perspective on teaching children now because of this past experience? How are you different than other teachers? So that's a very good question. You have, <laughs> may I just say you have very good questions? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I have come up with, um, I do look at teaching differently. I'm very, I'm an intense teacher. And I look at things, um, the big picture. So I have noticed that children who cannot be uncomfortable do not learn well. So if they say, um, tie my shoe, tie my shoe, like they can't learn if their shoe isn't tied or if their feet got wet from a puddle or, you know, if mom didn't bring their lunch and they're uncomfortable because they want their own lunch and they cannot learn, that is a big block to learning. 
So we're not even talking about how they grew up, who their family is, right? How, who read them books? Children who don't know how to be uncomfortable cannot learn. Children who don't have logic skills cannot learn. So I don't care if you've never heard of letters and numbers. If you know how to build blocks and make a bridge to your other tower and then make up a story along with it, I can teach you to read pretty fast. Unless you have a disability, but then I can still teach you. It might take longer. Yeah. So, so that's how I look at teaching different than most people. I look at um, I want you to be a risk taker. That's another really important thing. Because if you're not a risk taker, you're not going to sound out the word cat because you don't want to make a mistake. So we don't want look at the children who think they're, they, have, they have to be perfect. We want them to, to take that chance and jump. Yes, exactly. No, I was just wondering if you're finding as time goes on, I have four children and they're grown. I've got four grandchildren now. I see nice. the way we're treating children differently now than when my kids were young. And like you, I'm, I think we're about the same age. When, when we were growing up in Woodstock, Vermont, seven acres of land, my mom would say, go out and play. And we would go, we would never be by the TV and inside all the time playing games and that kind of stuff. We would always be riding our bikes, playing tennis, playing, you know, we'd be gone all day long, building tree forts, that kind of stuff. Right. We could because we were felt safe. Today, yeah. the kids aren't going out because they may not feel safe or their parents may not feel that they're safe outside. And so we minimize a lot of the risks that the children are faced with because they're comfortable inside. You know, the biggest surprise to the pandemic, what an awful time for the world. What, what a trying, scary awfulness. And, and I had to teach children online. But, and we won't even talk about that, how difficult that was. You can oh, imagine. bless your heart for that. I, I, I don't know how you did it with kindergartners. It was so hard. And then when it was time for the kids to come back in the room, and in fact, I always say kindergarten, but I teach at a public Montessori. Montessori at this age is three, four, and five-year-olds together in one room. So I also okay. had three and four-year-olds. So the hardest thing, when we did return to five days a week after spring break in person, um, unless kids wanted to be remote, and then they could remain remote and learn on the computer. But for the kids coming in, I'm like, how are we going to keep kids in one seat, they had to eat breakfast yeah. in, at their seat. We called it their area. We, they had to eat breakfast. They had to work at their area, eat lunch. They had to stay six feet. Like, how are we going to keep them in one spot all day? And the biggest surprise for me was that it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be because many of these children had been sitting home watching TV all day oh. while their parents had to work. <laughs> and so they actually... Normally, when you teach kids, like, they have a lot of energy. They have to go run around. They really didn't have that in the beginning until they mm. kind of got you. They, they, were so, they were exhausted, you know, being with strangers all day and having to do this kind of work. And, uh, my yeah. grandson, who was in first grade, um, when he, they're out in Dallas, they were not uh, remote too long. But while he was, my daughter's boyfriend's father is kind of convoluted. He's an engineer in, in San Diego. We would do, uh, we took turns doing FaceTime or Skyping or whatever, Zoom. I guess we were Zooming at the time. Uh, he would do Zoom math. I would do Zoom history or Zoom reading or whatever. And we would make it fun. So we would be the substitute teachers for my nice. grandson, which was cool. It gave my daughter a little break because she was trying to work from home. My youngest granddaughter at the time, she was, she's four. All she wanted to do was play on the computer and get in her brother's way. And I'm thinking, right. oh, my gosh, can you imagine doing this with a whole classroom full of children? Your perception, and I loved how you said when you were getting your memory back and you were back in school, you were learning how it was to, to hold a pencil so, yeah. or to hold, you know, to do whatever again, to read again. So I would imagine that you can take that into the classroom with a Montessori, the three, four, five-year-olds, and exactly knowing how they feel when they hold the pencil. Right. So... And I taught high school special ed English. I've taught all different things. And I always start with, like, I understand what it's like to learn. I understand how uncomfortable learning can be and how hard and how, wait, I thought I knew this and I don't know it and I have to learn it again. Like, I have a lot of patience mm -hmm. for children who need a lot of repeating because I need a lot of repeating in the beginning to help my brain 
categorize itself and learn how to learn. If your brain is disorganized, you cannot learn. Mm-hmm. And I knew that for myself. Would you, would you tell your story to the kids so they understood that you understood or not? So I have told it. I didn't tell it when I taught high school. I, it wasn't the kind of situation. But when I taught middle school, I did tell them. Okay. I told them, like, I took an aspirin from someone, and they were like, why would you ever do that? And I'm like, you think you, and I, you know, so, but I had permission from staff. Like, I did talk about it and how it changed my brain and how I didn't stop. And they really, they were really taken by it. In fact, there was a, I let a, a TV crew go into my classroom when I taught uh, fifth grade in Denver, and they actually came in and did a whole segment, which is also no longer on the internet. <laughs> That's too bad. I, I, realized that. I really wanted to see what your story was about, and there's nothing there. I'm like, oh my gosh. I know. It's I important, know. and, and know, don't, you, don't you think maybe a lot has been learned since then? Because when I looked up, when I thought you had face blindness, I'm there, there's a whole lot of stuff on there since 2008. I think people need to hear about this, though, because uh, when I was researching the facial blindness, I heard this comment, and this is true about any of us that have had something happen, is that people don't usually complain. They don't tell what happened because they don't understand they have it. You know, like the facial right. blindness is like people just figure that they have trouble with faces. And I'm thinking, yeah. I can't remember names sometimes. I'm really good at faces and how that would change my life if I couldn't remember a face. So, Right. So, so here's the difference. I was going to tell you the difference between yeah. protopagnosia and visual amnesia. Yes, ma'am. If you have protopagnosia, which it could be, I think there, it used to be like 10% of the population um, could have it. And it means that for some weird reason, when you look at faces, there's like a cloud. There's a weird cloud. Nobody really knows why. And you can't really see the face. It's almost mm-hmm. like your brain cannot see it. I was tested by the head researcher for face blindness, Dr. Brad Duchesne. He was at University Hospital London, but I think now he's at Stanford. I'm not sure. He's mm-hmm. somewhere on this side of the pond now. Um, and he came. He was very cool and did all this testing. And he's like, I've never seen what you have. I'm like, yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> so the difference is I can see, and he would say, he, he was super cute, and when I met with him, he was like in his, I don't know, early 30s and was just starting to have babies. This was a while ago with his wife, and he's like, do you think I'm cute? <laughs> like, no, if you had face blindness, you can't see the face, so you can't judge if someone's cute. And, and I said, yeah, I do. He said, why? And he listened to my answer. He's like, you can completely see my face. My, the difference in what I have is that I can't remember people, places, or things. I joke that I can't see nouns. So I'm sitting right now in my living room. I don't remember what my bedroom looks like because it's down the hall. I don't remember what my car looks like. I don't remember what I look like. When I drive, I get really lost mm. because I have to pay attention now. I memorize. When I, drive, when I go anywhere, I have to absolutely memorize what things look like. So I have to pay strict attention. Most people with face blindness, after seeing someone for many years, it becomes imprinted and they are able to see the face of the people they love. Mine, never. I'm never able to remember what somebody looks like. So Holly, how, in a classroom, how do you remember who your children are? That's a really good question. Again, do they wear I, name I, I don't tags? I say or? this so much. <laughs> well, on the first day of school, they do, but I'm, so I memorize. So I am able to memorize every one of my students within the first two days. There's been a rare occasion where it's super hard. I've even had identical twins that I could remember better than anyone else because their eyes were a different shape, and I just learned. So I'm very, very good at learning what people look like. I notice if a kid gets a new pair of shoes, I memorize all of their clothes, everything they wear, their back. Like, I'm very good at that. I memorize. Your brain must be exhausted. You know, it's funny. My first memoir, the memoir I wrote where I included some stories about this, is called Unlikely Memories and Two Amnesias. Mm-hmm. And I've just been starting to think, 
I might be ready to tell kind of the real rough side of it because I've spent a lot of my life like dating going, don't worry, I got this. You have nothing to worry about. To where, you know what, this is actually really hard. So I think if I write another memoir, which at some point I will, is I'm going to call it like I lied. Oh. I didn't lie about having amnesia. I lied about how easy it is. Yeah. Well, we don't want people to feel uncomfortable. And we don't want them to think right. that we're not perfect. And the fact is we are. And we all have something different in our life. That, But you know it would be interesting if you were to really tell the truth. I bet you there are people out there that are going through the same thing that say, wow, not, now I'm not alone. Exactly. And that's and why, why we have the show. I know. And I've done a lot of media over the years, and then I just stopped because mm -hmm. I had to come to terms with my medicals, as I call them, are not my whole life. Right. Right. And so I got to a point where I only wrote books about other things. But now it's coming full circle. Like I'm feeling more comfortable. And like, you know what? That's why I said it's time for me to start talking about this again because people are shocked. I did another podcast recently where I mentioned something. They went, whoa, whoa, stop. What are you talking about? Like, I guess I have to talk about this more because it does help other people feel more comfortable with what they're going through. Absolutely. And there might be a child out there, too, that is struggling and the parents have no clue. You know, you might have a child that's acting up and we don't know the real reason why, you know. And it could right. be that but maybe that's they're my, frustrated. That's my specialty. Yeah, my yeah. specialty is getting deeper and figuring it out. And I'm actually super lucky. Currently, I teach in a classroom with a co-teacher, a regular ed teacher, and a teacher assistant. And the three of us are an amazing team together. And our ability, all three of us, we figure kids out. We'll say, my TA will say, so-and-so seems sad. And I'll pull that kid aside. And, 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 you know, I had a boy that felt sad this year because he turned four, and it didn't feel any different than when he, turned, when he was three. Oh. Can you imagine being able to verbalize that as a child? And he was really no. sad. I know. And I'm like, uh, I'm glad we talked about this. <laughs> I know. Well, I just turned 63, and I'm really glad it didn't feel any different than 62. <laughs> 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 well, bless his heart, because all you want to do when you're little is grow up. You just want to be older. Right. You know? Yeah, he wanted to feel different. I remember, like, driving from state to state. You always think it's going to feel different in a new state or look different. <laughs> it looks exactly the same. <laughs> it's just a sign. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, goodness. Yeah, you're, you're going into Texas now. Oh, my goodness. Well, this is so much fun, and, and your books are amazing. Um, so the first book, well, your memoir was called Unlikely Memories and Two Amnesias, and then yes. Cheese for Breakfast, My Turkish Summer. There's so much we could talk about. I want people to go to your website, see these books, get them. They're fun. The ones I want to get are the ones that you wrote for the kids. Can you kind of explain the two, the two books you've written for kids and how those came about? Yeah, sure. So as a teacher of young children, I wanted a book of writing prompts that even a three- and a four-year-old could use. And there's nothing out there. And, and the only writing prompt books for children are things like how to write about lizards. Like they're all nonfiction writing prompts. And I wanted fiction. Little kids want to make up stories about robots and monsters and <laughs> unicorns. So I made my own. I wrote a book, and I took photos that, from my collection of either nieces and nephews or friends' children. I have none of my own children. And blue, so they're large photographs. So my youngest children just look at the pictures, and they make up a story, and then they go and write their own story, which means draw a picture at that age. But all the kids, then there's several prompts on there. And so it's been a really popular book. Um, people all over the world are like, this is exactly what we needed. We needed a book that our children could, there weren't demands being placed on them. It's more, hey, have a little fun with creativity. What do you, what do you want to write about? You need to get so that into the classrooms. I know. Uh, many teachers have bought it around the world. And many parents during um, lockdown, they were yeah. like, this is what we need. It's yeah. called um, Right Now ideas for writers. And one of the things I didn't do is put the word children in the title because mm. children don't want to read children's books. 
Well, you know, true. They don't want to read books. It probably is not a bad idea for the adults too. I mean, I love to write, uh, and I and I write monthly for a magazine, and it just like that when I was telling you, you know, make choices and hamburger, hot dog, or whatever for Fourth of July. Sometimes <laughs> you just have to get out of your brain and, and just you know have fun and just let it come out. But what I I think that'd be a great idea for adults too. It doesn't have to be just for children. But I'm looking at my grandkids, thinking they love they love to make up stories. So this would be a great yeah. family event. Just you know, pull one of the the ideas out of the hat and just say, "Okay, guys, let's do a family night." And so and so, what do you think? I, I think that's yeah. a great idea. Great idea. That the is other a great book, idea. the other book he wrote was called Hans Help. Yeah. Right? So. At the beginning of the pandemic, before we knew what was going on, um, you know, we went until um, they closed schools, and it was a very frightening time, as we all can remember. And I have a great nephew whose parents were still working at the time, and I offered to take him for a day. And he came over, and he just, why do we have to wear a mask? Why can't we go hug? Why can't, why can't, why can't? He had so many questions, and I started writing down what he was saying and decided to write it into a children's book. And so at the time, he wasn't wearing a mask. Like this is before the mask mandate came in. So this was like a right away. And parents loved it. It was a way that they could read this book to children, help them understand the pandemic, understand what was going on, how to, and the whole idea of the book was to help my great nephew, we came up with ideas of what can you do to help keep everyone safe? Wash hands. He helped me clean all the doorknobs in my house. You know, just things like that to try to keep everything safe. Mm-hmm. How he could help even as a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. So the book, it did very well. Um, I'm very grateful. And then when the pandemic continued and they wanted children to wear a mask, everyone said, you need to go back and just change the book to where he wears a mask. And I wouldn't do it because this book is a historical look at the beginning of the pandemic. Just so answering the first questions. You need volume two. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. we got through it. Right. There, right. There could be. There could be volume two. Yeah. But really what's happening now is libraries all over the world are using this book as a historical document. Super. I do have Dr. Tim McGinnis on the line, and Tim and I were talking. Tim is an anthropologist, and I was like, when I heard about your story, I'm like, Tim, you got to hear this one because I'm just going to have him come on in. Tim, are you there? I am here. Hi, Tim. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Tim, Good, how are you? We deal with a lot of folks that have um, basically PTSD, PTS. And, uh, and, and some have amnesia. I mean, you wrote me a note saying we all deal with amnesia. Um, right. Uh, actually, the, the, the technical term for, for what uh, you had was post-traumatic amnesia, uh, resulting from a brain injury or, or an illness. And obviously, the number of flavors that that comes in is many. Uh, most of the people that we deal with have something called disassociated am- disassociative amnesia, which Correct. results from a traumatic experience, not an injury. In other words, an emotional trauma. And, right. and one of the, the things that you mentioned that distinguishes between the two most clearly is the aspect of anger. An amnesia victim who experiences anger is dealing with a physical manifestation. Something happened to their brain. Disassociative amnesia are people that are generally kind of cool with the whole proposition. In some cases, they're even amused by it um, because they're, they're sort of observing the situation as almost as though it's third party without an emotional connection because their emotions have sort of been put in a box at that point in time. But... It, it's very common with crime victims that um, as a result of either the shock or the, the emotional stress following their crime, they'll lose memories. Typically, they can get them back if they want them back. Sometimes it's decided that they don't need them back because the, the, the memory is too traumatic. 
Um, right. It's also common, you know, that they can be compounded, the two together. What I found curious was when you were talking about the date rape drug, I have degrees in anthropology and archaeology, and I'm fairly familiar with some tropical pharmacology because they play a role in rituals, practices of people in the tropics. And there's, there's you know, a few drugs. Curare is one of them. And there's a few other which are, are you know, plant-based psychotropics and, and hallucinogenics that actually, interestingly enough, um, cannibals used to take to sort of reset their memory of cannibalistic activities. It's sort of a way of pushing the reset button and says, no, nope, I don't want to remember that, but it was a good dinner. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, 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 it's a, a funny world that we live in. But, you know, I have to commend you on, on such a challenging uh, situation that you overcame. And it's uh, any form of trauma is, is it's an uphill struggle. Uh, you kind of have to start from step one and climb each step regardless of what that recovery process is and can be very frustrating along the way. And it's an incredible achievement to having made it to a point of, you know, successful functionality at the, at the end of it. And clearly you have. It sounds like in the process you gained eidetic memory in, the, in, in as well. By, by losing such a big chunk of, you know, your stored memory. And, and what's interesting about that, and, and one of the reasons why I can imagine that doctors are so surprised, is that memory is stored in so many different places. Um, you know, cerebral cortex, the cerebellum, the amygdala, you know, the rat brain in the, in the, the bottom drawer as well as the higher functions and visual right. cortex and all of that. Yep. To lose all of that is amazing. Yep. And amazing that you were able to rewire on the fly and put those pieces back together. That's, a, that's astounding and an incredible achievement. It has been an ongoing process. I will just say one thing. Um, the, when you said disassociative amnesia, I did not, I felt like I was experiencing life as an infant for the first time. My brain was so fast like an infant. There was a weird reset button. So it wasn't like I was third party just watching. So that was pretty unusual for right. what was known at the time for amnesia. Um, and I do remember, like, when I, I went back to college, so I, I went back to college and I took a Spanish class, a beginning Spanish class, because I thought that would be easier. And they even came up with a computer program to help me learn. Like, it would say, um, chair, see ya. And, it would, and then it would say chair, and I'd go, like, the program's broken. I never saw this word before. So in the beginning, I didn't have any ability to remember memories, but I did gain that. I had to learn that on my own. I can't believe our hour has flown by because, Holly, there's so much I'd like to talk to you about, and maybe we'll, we'll get you back on. But this has been really interesting. And thank you for being open and willing to speak up. And I know it, it might have brought back some you know, feelings that were uncomfortable, but like you said, we learn when we're uncomfortable. And, and I know that I'm learning as I get older that it's okay to feel uncomfortable. We need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And, uh, and that's what this show is all about. So thank you so much for, for spending some time with us and for enlightening us on, on these things. And I wish you all the best with teaching and, and the next coming year. How can people get a hold of you and find your books? I think they're really terrific. Yeah. So I just want to mention to Tim that as an archaeologist, you might like my book about um, cheese for breakfast in Turkey. I stayed with a family and um, the, the father of the family, the husband, uh, is a top archaeologist in, um, in Turkey, one of the top ones. He ran Ephesus for years and now runs a series of five different museums in the Izmir area. So it's pretty cool. That, yeah, he took me to Ephesus and gave me a talk. His English wasn't great, but it was amazing to have that kind of back, someone who really knew it. 
And um, I also got to go to two live archaeological digs. Um, one that's really just a tarp over a mound of dirt. They've been excavating <laughs> it for many years. So, well, Tim, maybe we can put Holly's books on our on our store. Uh, we would be happy to do that. Okay, I would love that. Thank you. Um, so the best way to find me and my and any any of my things, you're right. There's so much going on in my life. It's hard to fit it into one hour. But I really appreciate you trying. And, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. So my website is hollywinter.com, H-O-L-L-Y-W-I-N-T-E-R.com. And there's a bridge to my books. There's a bridge to my skincare products that I formulate. Um, I just restocked my face serum, and everyone's all excited and packing orders right before we talked. And after. We didn't even talk about that, but there are some really good YouTube videos about that. I those out. <laughs> <laughs> you did your homework for sure. Uh, it's, so it's hollywinter.com. Correct. Okay. Thank you all for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you've been a victim of scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS is an incorporated nonprofit crime assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can help donate, please go to our website and I'll put that on the show. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfoteaming products at BenfoComplete.com. Use a special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being here today. Go to my website, thewomanbehindthesmile.com for additional information and resources. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. My book, The Woman Behind the Smile, is on Audible. And the new book's coming out in a couple of weeks and it's called The Gift of, whoa, The Gift Called Fearless. I'm really excited about it. Enjoy the replays, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today and have a marvelous 4th of July. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.